Welcome to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Getting Common covers a variety of topics and features guests from business, law, politics, government, education, and some of the most insightful entrepreneurs. It's a refreshing, common-sense approach to some of the most important discussion points today. Now, here is your host, Carlos Chapman. I'm Carlos Chapman, your host of Getting Common. In my day job, I'm an associate professor at Washington and Lee's Law School. The topic of today's episode is what's behind the disparities in Black women's health. And I'm here today with one of my closest friends, Dr. Richard Jones, who I will allow to introduce himself before we get into the topic. Hello, good evening. In my day job, I am an obstetrician gynecologist, women's healthcare provider, uh, here in the Washington, D.C. metro area with the University of Maryland Capital Region Health. And so we see a wide variety of patients from all over the um, DMV region. The majority of our patients are Black and Hispanic and underserved um, or underinsured or uninsured with poor social economic status. All right. So, so the topic today that I want to get into is what's behind the disparities in Black women's health. Um, and so as a doctor who serves mostly Black and Hispanic women in a underserved population, you know, what's happening with health care? What do the statistics look like, you know, in the kinds of patients you see and in Black women in general? Well, we're seeing budget cuts. We're seeing hospital closures and clinic closures, particularly in areas um, that are needed, um, urban areas. So, for example, here in Washington, D.C., we have Ward 7 and Wards 8, which are both majority Black, um, with hundreds of thousands of people. Um, and this is really all a systemic racism problem, right? These two wards have the highest rates of poverty. They have the highest rates of drug use, crime, um, and lack of access to health care. And so recently, um, this part of D.C., which is east of the river, away from the kind of more affluent part of D.C., Um, There were several hospital closures and several clinic closures. And so for this region, which is a vast, 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 uh, big, big population, there are no hospitals that provide obstetric care or women's health care. So these young women have to go either out of state to Prince George's County so they'll get um, reproductive health care or obstetric care, or they have to go to other parts of the city way out of their way to to get the care that they need. And so this kind of just trickles down. It's a big, big cycle. You know, you're, you're closing and not giving these people access to health care. And then they have to go out of their way to get transportation, child care, um, just to be able to get the proper health care they need. And then here you have this whole, whole region of one city that has no hospitals for these people to go to. But it's really is systemic in nature. I mean, this, this goes back to redlining, housing discrimination and these people are packed into one region and here we are in 2022 where they have nowhere to go and oftentimes with women's health care and particularly with obstetrics time is of the essence so if you have a young lady who's showing up to somewhere in labor with nowhere to go she's having an obstetrical emergency she's bleeding she got hit by a car and then you have to put her in an ambulance and transport her 20 20 minutes away or 30 minutes away to a hospital that probably doesn't even want her there, majority white hospital, or where there are clinicians who don't look like her or who don't understand her, 
her social status or I able to communicate with her, then right there, that's a high risk of infant mortality for that baby and maternal mortality for that baby. So this is just systemic in nature. So, you know, it's interesting to me that, you know, everyone, what I always grew up knowing DC is chocolate city, right? So the idea that there's a whole region of DC with no hospitals, such that you'd have to go to Maryland, you know, PG counties in Maryland, that part shocks me. But I just wonder if, you know, do food deserts parallel with healthcare deserts? Like, is it all, because you mentioned redlining and systemic. So is this all a part of the same cycle? Like you don't have food, you don't have quality housing, and you also don't have healthcare. Are they all kind of wedded together? Yeah, definitely. You don't have food. You have a lack of uh, access to educational resources. So you have a higher high school dropout rate. These ladies are more likely to fall out of the system right? Not able to get jobs or more likely to get on social uh, welfare programs. And they can't go anywhere to buy their groceries that contributes to what? Obesity, high blood pressure. Um, This not only in their pregnancy care will put them at high risk for all kinds of complications. Then you have nowhere for them to go to even get care. Here in War 7 and War 8. I mean, in a whole big, big city, the nation's capital. Right where this is where this is happening, and so this trickles down and it causes a domino effect, basically, where this goes all the way into your healthcare and your own personal health, where you're not getting proper care that you need or access to care, or you're falling out of you're falling out of the system, and all you have to do is you have to worry about how am I going to get food for my kid, how am I going to go to work. The last thing on your mind is your healthcare, especially when you don't have any quick, quick, easy access to it. So it's a big, big domino effect. It's a big spiral effect. Systemic racism, still we are here in 2022, dealing with the same issue. So so what I think is interesting when we talk about the numbers for Black women's health care, especially infant mortality and uh, maternal mortality rate, Mm -hmm. economics don't matter, right? You know, a woman like me, has a higher infant mortality rate or maternal mortality rate than my peer of the same education and uh, income background. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it doesn't, the numbers don't change when we have more resources. Um, Is there a reason for that? Or do do, do y'all have a clinical reason why you believe that is? Well, clinically, there's still a lot of underrepresentation Um, in medical schools, pre-medical programs. You don't have physicians Black physicians who look like us or physicians who are competent in cultural care. So you still have to this day white medical students who literally think that we have thicker skin, Black people. They're still being taught this in medical schools. And so they think we have a different perception of pain. You have um, Black women who are unlikely to have their symptoms of pain and other issues quickly assessed by a nurse by a physician. Um, Let's take Serena Williams, for example, right? Arguably the world's greatest athlete, the world's richest athlete, who had to advocate for her own self during her postpartum care. This is a young woman who had a pulmonary embolism, as you know, blood clots. She had a high-risk pregnancy. And then she gets birth in this nice, fancy white hospital. And she goes on her day, her first day after having a C-section, mind you, it's really, really high-risk young lady, and she's complaining of chest pain. 
and she goes and tells her nurse and they ignore her symptoms and dismiss her. And Serena, who has a voice, who has money, is able to advocate for herself, has to go to these people and tell them, you know, I've had pulmonary embolism in the past. I'm a high-risk patient. You all need to get a CT of my chest right now. And the nurses still dismissed her, her complaints. You know, Serena talked about this um, a couple of years ago after she gave birth. And she ended up with what? Another pulmonary embolism. That could have been fatal and killed her. She would have been another statistic of maternal mortality. So that being said, no matter your socioeconomic status, you're still going to face systemic racism. Your complaints are more likely to be dismissed. And this is Serena Williams we're talking about, who has a voice and is able to advocate for herself. So imagine all the millions of young, poor, Black, and Latina women who are out there unable to advocate for themselves dealing with the same issues. This is why our maternal, maternal mortality rate is a lot higher. So what, you know, how bad are the numbers? Like I keep saying the numbers are bad, the numbers are bad. Um, you know, how different is the healthcare outcomes for Black women, you know, than our peers who are white or even our peers who are Latina? Like, you know, how bad does it look? And this is still re- regardless of social economic status. The numbers have not changed in over 30 years still because we're in this uh, era of systemic racism that's, that's still existing. So reproductive health, Black women are still more likely to be diagnosed later with breast cancer or cervical cancer. Um, we're still more likely to die from a heart attack or lung cancer, which are the four most common killers of women nationwide. They're more likely to not get access to health care, more likely to not have diagnostic tests run. Um, or have their complaints listened to by, by white physicians who just aren't culturally in tune. And this is regardless of socioeconomic status. And the maternal mortality rates are still high. I mean, a Black baby is more likely to not come out of the hospital alive after it's been born, still here to this very day in 2022, so it's regardless of socioeconomic status. So this is a systemic issue that's still been in place for a long time that we still haven't been able to resolve because we still have this lack of representation in healthcare, particularly at the higher level with physicians, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, and nurses. So if you don't have people who look like you take care of you, then you're more likely to have poor outcomes. So I'd love for you to, you know, tell everyone, you know, you're a doctor working with an underserved population. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, you could be like a plastic surgeon and be a millionaire or like, you know, doing something, you know, there are things that doctors do that pay a lot more money and that work a lot less hours than what you do. Mm -hmm. So what inspires you to serve the population you serve? And, you know, what what made you want to go to med school and what made you want to, you know, do what it is that you do every day? Well, growing up, I didn't see people looking like me, taking care of me, particularly of the women in my community. And coming from Baltimore um, and then coming from an area where I saw a lot of teenage pregnancy, not only in my own family, but I saw it in high school. Um, and I saw um, young Black women just not getting the proper access to health care. And so somebody who looks like me, doesn't, doesn't look like me, how are they able to take care of me and know my needs? And so that's kind of what inspired me, just to be able to come back into my own community um, and get back. Because you see, there's a trustworthiness. You know, we still, Black people still don't trust going to the doctor. This, this dates back, what, slavery when we were experimented on. But just even seeing my face when I walk into a room, it just brightens up 
so many people say they feel so much more at ease because they know that this person's probably going to advocate for me. They understand me. We come from the same place. We speak the same language. We speak the same lingo. So for me, it was about increasing representation, particularly of people who look like me, Black men in medicine, being able to take care of my own community because you see these same things are still happening. There are people dying, particularly for women, um, because I saw that with the women in my own family not getting the proper access uh, to health care that they needed. You know, my own mother would go for God knows how long without getting treated or being seen because she didn't trust doctors. They would have to look like her. So, wow. And and why 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 obstetrics and gynecology? Well, I, you know, who's the most undervalued group in America? Black women. Okay, and I think it's up to us as black men to protect them. I've always had an interest in women's health and birthing babies. This probably dates back to being a Cosby kid and seeing that on TV. But hey, that was an influence too. I saw a black doctor on TV. I want to be just like him. Um, But particularly for me and seeing all the generational cycle of poverty and teenage teenage pregnancy in my family, that was something I wanted to do to permit that. So that's why I got interested in women's health. And it's a field where you can be a specialist, but you can also be a primary care provider because oftentimes I'm the only doctor a lot of these young women will see, you know, in their whole entire lifetime. They either only go to the doctor when they get pregnant or when they come for their annual exams. And so I'm often at the front line of diagnosing things like hypertension or diabetes because pregnancy manifests these things, right? So a young 25-year-old lady may come and see me just for her annual exam. We'll see another doctor. And I notice, oh, hey, Ms. Jones, you got a high blood pressure reading. Are you seeing a primary care physician? So oftentimes I'm the first line agent, first line provider that they see. So it's, it's, it's a combination of being able to be a specialist, but also able to be a primary care physician at the same time. You know, it's, you know, I, I love that you say that you, you know, are the first line person and you do the PCP work anyway, because, you know, I've gone to OBGYNs and I feel like I'm rushed in and out. So, you know, the idea that there is a OBGYN who's serving that double role um, is interesting to me because that's not an experience that I have always had. Um, Is that normal? Is that what, what, what you, you are taught to do clinically or is that what you do because of who you are and what you know about your patients? I think it's a little bit of both um, because I, you know, I went to medical school at Howard. So I was around black folks all the time and I was around these patient populations all the time. So we had a different, we were taught differently. We were taught more cultural competency, you know, versus going to a white medical school where they don't see this kind of patient population. Um, And I understand that um, in the region where I work, a big, big urban area like this, where I'm seeing a lot of poor and underserved, patients that that's just a socioeconomic status that's that's your clinical training that's your knowledge that's your upbringing that's the connection that i have being a black physician i'm able to see okay i know that this this young lady's likely not gonna come to the doctor again unless she gets pregnant so i need to address these issues with her now so i can stop anything from happening in the future so you know the, the majority of women only see us during their reproductive years for the health care and so it's I want this me to be more a very astute position, maybe to see these kinds of things, whereas other positions, they just want to get you in and out, just want to be a specialist. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. So 
you know, we, we talked about housing, right? And we talked about being in food deserts. Um, you know, I've, I've read about things like uh, using relaxers causing fibroids and um, living in a poor area with mouse dander having a, a more uh, propensity for asthma. Um, mm. Are there, like, what, are those things true or is that just like urban legend? Um, and is that why, you know, black women have more fibroids or black women have more of these things, the environmental things, um, or is, you know, are there other reasons perhaps behind why, you know, black women have more of a tendency towards things? So let's, let's think about it again. This is the domino effect, right? So here you are, we started with redlining. You're putting the districts where you have lack of access to food. So what are you going to go do? Eat fast food, right? Where does that go? You're contributing to obesity. What does that lead to? Heart disease, diabetes, hypertension. Where does that lead to reproductive-wise? You get women who are overly obese. They have problems with their menstrual cycles, like PCOS. Um, and then being overweight, but you're at risk of fibroids. So it's just a big, 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 big clinical clinical domino effect. You're, you're in poor housing with rat dander everywhere. That's going to increase your chances of having asthma and pulmonary disease and lung disease. You're in a place where you're getting exposed to drugs and crime. So you're more likely to turn to drug use and that's going to increase. Again, it's a, it's a big, big domino effect. So you see, it, it, it starts. It starts in the home. It starts in the neighborhood. And it starts, you know, in the district where they live. But this food desert, poor housing, unaffordable housing, it's all a big cascade that contributes to your overall health care issues, particularly for women. And what about things like chemicals, right? You know, we all read, you're, at least I do, right? When it's like, oh, because everyone of your generation relaxed their hair so young, that's why more women have that's why black women have these cancers because you're exposed to chemicals in that way mm-hmm. or because, you know, your house is carpeted and you're inhaling fumes, you know, which, which to me sounds like people are putting the blame on us, right? Like what you did to your hair, what, how you chose to decorate your home is why. Um, and, and my, my question is like, are those factors or is everything else you talked about a much bigger deal? I think everything else is a, is, is a much bigger deal. But again, chemical relaxers, you don't know what's in that stuff. I mean, there are no real, real studies about it, but we've seen a, an association between chemical hair relaxers and fibroid. But we've also seen that with diet. So um, it's really, really a big cascade effect, but it's it's more attributed to that systemic racism that's caused you to, why do you want to go relax your hair all the time? That too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's still in effect, even, even mentally. Right. No, yeah. that's a very good point. Like nobody wants to relax their hair unless they are told that their hair in its natural state is not attractive or <laughs> professional or all those other things. So you've you've talked a little bit already about how your identity makes a difference. And you've kind of alluded to going to Howard Med School and and the things you do clinically. Um, What you know, what what are some other ways that that your identity um, as as a black man, do you think makes you a better physician? And and I guess my, my other question is. 
Is some of what you do teachable to people who aren't people of color? Yes, because I, I think it all boils down to trust um, and being able to culturally communicate. And I'll give you an example of this. I had a um, white medical student who was following me around. I said, go on in and take this patient's history. So he comes out. This is a young lady who's um, at the beginning of her pregnancy. Um, and the important things we asked, medical history, family history, but particularly social history. Um, do you smoke? Do you, do, you, do you drink? Do you need any drugs? And so he, um, he was like, yeah, she denies doing any of that. She doesn't smoke, she doesn't drink. I said, okay, come on, come on, come on. Let's go see. So I said, hi, hi, young lady. Um, so you smoke gas? She's like, oh, yeah, I do Kush, um, OG, um, all this other stuff. And yeah, and I use the funnel and I roll it in the um, cigarillo sometimes. And a student was just sitting there like, oh, wow, she told me she didn't smoke anything. So I told him, you know, when black people say smoke, it means something different. She thought she was smoking cigarettes. No, this lady is smoking marijuana. And here we, you just potentially missed a big, big important thing about marijuana use and tobacco use and pregnancy that it could complicate her pregnancy because you didn't know how to ask the right questions. And then me and this lady had a five minute conversation about all the types of marijuana she smokes and the paper she uses. And I had to warn her about, well, you don't want to use funnel. You don't want to use leaves. You don't want to use game. You don't want to use cigarillos because that tobacco use can cause you these, these types of issues with pregnancy. And the students just sat there like, oh, wow, I just completely missed it. And I was like, yeah, that's the point. You have wow. to know your population. You have to know to be able to communicate. You have to be culturally competent because otherwise you're going to miss things like this. That lady wasn't comfortable telling you that, but she didn't know how to ask the right question. You didn't mean the cultural competency. So I went in there and I, you know, defined smoking as we as Black people think it, at least over here in Hampshire County, in Washington, D.C. And it just completely in, opened up a door that she, that the student was like, oh my God. So I think it's just little nuances like that um, where cultural competency and cultural sensitivity and cultural training. I mean, also even things just like, you know, different cultures express pain in different ways, right? Um, women who are South, of Southeast Asian descent may not, may be very, very stoic and more po- poised. And so she's telling you she has pain, but you, you don't you see it. You're not, you're looking at her face. She's not saying anything. Then you're going to dismiss her complaints. African-Americans express pain differently. White people express pain differently. It's just those little things and those little nuances that could keep um, things from being missed in their misses. And but that that little wee lesson with my little white medical student just completely opened his eyes. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's something where when you said that, I was like, if someone asked me if I smoke, I assume they mean tobacco. If I'm in a doctor's office, right? Mm-hmm. Like if right. I'm in a doctor's office and you say smoke, I assume you mean tobacco. And the forum actually probably just says tobacco. And then it says like drug use. And so many people don't think marijuana is a drug, right? Because it's like, right. well, I don't, I'm not shooting up heroin. I don't use drugs and I don't smoke cigarettes. So I don't smoke. And just you saying that had me like, oh, wait, I would answer those questions exactly the same way if I were that woman and a white right. doctor asked me, right? Like right. I would. But if we were out in the street and we say, you smoke, you think it's a different thing, right? But it's yeah. like, he doesn't notice because he hasn't been exposed to this. So fortunately he was here with me where I could teach him that. 
But what if there was another white physician here that like, and they didn't delve deep into that topic? We would have missed a whole complete thing that could have completely changed the course of her pregnancy. So cultural competency is very, very, very important. It's still lacking here. I mean, still white medical students, like I said, they think we have thick skin, different pain receptors when we don't. And this is being taught here in 2022. So, you know, you, you mentioned near misses, um, you know, and, and, and your role as an interventionist, right? So, you know, as the doctor who intervenes, you know, uh, especially in a community like PG County, where you're servicing the people who are coming from the seventh and eighth ward who have to cross over into Maryland, um, you know, how, how, how is your presence impacted outcomes, you would say? Um, like, how, what, what does your presence do for your patients? Well, we have uh, early, um, early intervention and late intervention, but I can say my presence gives a sense of trust. So patients are more likely to open up to you and actually tell you what's going on. Um, my, my presence has stopped a lot of near misses, near catastrophes, because there are things that I, as a Black physician, am clinically astute to catch. Um, that someone else may not see, just little nuances, um, little things um, like that. Like I could see, for example, patient came in and was overdosing on PCP. The wife is just looking at her like thinking she's cutting up and just having a mental breakdown. And then I'm looking and I'm like, no, I seen this on the street. She's had this certain drug and here and behold, this is affecting her baby while she's in labor. Wow. Mm. And so had that been missed, this lady would have come in with a dead baby. Just a little, just kind of little nuances like that. Our presence makes a difference because we're able to catch things and we're able to communicate with our patients um, in a cultural sense that brings a sense of trust. Patients are more likely to keep their appointments. They're more likely to take their medication. They're more likely to follow your instructions because they trust you. As a black physician, I had a patient tell me that um, the other day. She's like, I only see black doctors because I don't trust white doctors. Unfortunately, for the experiences that she's had in the past, she felt like they didn't listen to her. She felt like that she was being experimented on. So, you know, the onus is on me to have a presence where I'm able to save lives just, I mean, just by the color of my skin and me being able to be able to communicate with these patients culturally. It, it, it's prevented a lot of deaths or near deaths. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. You know, I, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, gender identity and sexual orientation, um, especially in the black community mm-hmm. and, you know, how that impacts the patients you see. You know, I, I feel like we say black women, but I should probably say black uh, non-men. Um, and, and I would love you to talk a little bit about, you know, your, your treatment of the queer community and, and what that has been like, especially in a community like PG County that is Black, and we have our kind of cultural stigmas about, about that, that kind of overarches it. Mm-hmm. Well, I can first say that I'm kind of a unicorn out here, an openly Black queer male physician who takes care of women, right? So um, I have my own cross or intersectional identity, right, because I've had to deal with racism from white physicians and homophobia from white physicians. I've also had to deal with it from other black physicians. And so us black queer physicians, we're kind of a subculture 
what's in a subculture because we're such a rare unicorn <laughs> or unicorns. Um, you understand what I'm saying? And for young Black um, women of the LGBTQ spectrum, I'm just going to say queer, whether you're transgendered, um, they're already starting out behind. So they're more likely to be homeless because their parents put them out of their home. They're more likely to resort to drug use um, because they're facing discrimination because of their orientation. I mean, I mean, I mean, imagine being a black queer woman. Here you have to deal with class, right? Racism, homophobia, and misogyny. And the last thing on your mind is your, your reproductive health. Right. So they're already starting behind with lack of access to health care, particularly for transgender women. And so they fear going to physicians, period, because they're going to have to deal with all those issues at once. They deal with it from Black physicians. The homophobia they deal with from Black physicians is horrible and strong. And so um, they feel comfortable with me because I can understand that cross-sectional identity, particularly when it comes to things like reproductive health. They may not understand that, yeah, you may not sleep with men, but you still need to get a pass me. I had a young lesbian patient come uh, in her 50s, never got a pass me before, ended up with cervical cancer because oh. she didn't know. Like, no, it doesn't matter if you sleep with men or not. You still have to get a um, pass me. Um, a lot of transgender women may not know. If you have breast tissue, you still need to get a pa- uh, mammogram. So the other issue comes with people who want to plan families. So they're going to uh, already have a going into a business, a fertility business, which is mostly cash only. And so these patients are unlikely to have insurance. So they go to extreme measures to start a family. I've seen women order a basic kit from Amazon and then find a random donor out in the neighborhood and inseminate themselves because they can't get access to that proper reproductive technology in the office. Why? They can't afford it. Two, they're going to face homophobia from physicians. They're going to face racism and discrimination from physicians. Um, and me being this, I guess, intersectional physician, is that what I want to call myself? Am I intersectional physician? Intersectional. I think you're intersectional. Yeah. You're intersectional. You're definitely a unicorn. You are most certainly a unicorn. <laughs> so they feel comfortable with me. Oh, there's a Black queer face that I can come and talk to about my reproductive health. Um, just even simple things about sexual practices, you know, using sexual toys. Oh, I can still get dissonance. I'm not supposed to properly clean it. Just things that they feel comfortable with that they wouldn't otherwise go because, you know, that they're Black women, but the Black queer women are even lower in the totem pole and even at high risk for these things. So I think it's very, very, very important not only to get young Black medical students um, into primary care fields, but young Black queer students, because it really, really, really makes a difference. Particularly here in, in DMV or Atlanta, where you have a huge, huge um, Black queer population. It makes a difference. So I know that folks turn it, tune in for advice. So I'm going to kind of start with where we just ended with, with queer folks and kind of work backwards of, you know, obviously not direct medical advice. I wouldn't do that to you because I am a lawyer, but just kind of the preventative care suggestions um, that you would give. And I'll start with trans women. 
Um, so if for a trans, first of all, um, if someone is transitioning mm-hmm. either male to female or female to male, which specialists should they be seen? Like, should a, should a woman who's transitioning to male always come see you or all, yeah. So I'll start with that. So let me start. First of all, you should not be getting your hormones off the street. That's the big thing. Again, like I was saying with our poor queer black and Latina Latinx people um, who are ashamed for what they're going through, often their health insurance doesn't even cover if they have health insurance. Medicaid particularly doesn't cover hormonal treatment and transitioning treatment. So that would be my first thing. Do it safely. Do not go get injections from cinnamon up in Baltimore. Do not go and do that. That would be my first, first suggestion is to do everything safely and that there is access out there for you. Um, I, the, the thing I, I say, first of all, is regardless of who you're transitioning to, is that you have to understand your reproductive proper health screening, right? So if you still have your anatomical female parts, whether you identify as male or female, you have to get a pap smear, regardless, right? If you have breast tissue, whether you're, whether you consider yourself cisgender, whatever you're the spectrum you fall, you need to get breast exams. Okay. For people who are, who want to transition, who want to do it properly, the first step is to see an endocrinologist. Okay. So they wouldn't come and see me because that's not a part of our specialty. We can do their preventative care and their screening. We can take care of them when they're pregnant, but they would first see an endocrinologist to begin the um, hormonal process. And then the next step, if you're considering surgery, um, the andro- it's actually called an andrologist, which is a branch of urology. It's a urology specialty who takes care of those patients. But I just implore you to do it safely. You're not going to do it off the streets because I've seen too many potential complications come from hormones and injections. I mean, you've seen them with right? Mm-hmm. Um, getting hormones off the street where you don't know where you're getting it from and it can cause you to have a heart attack or a stroke. Um, and so that there, there is access out there. Okay. Washington, D.C. takes care of its residents pretty, pretty well. So does the state of Maryland. And so most insurances are now covering um, treatment to transition from one gender to another, uh, particularly Medicaid. So that I would implore people to do. All right. So we got get the proper treatment as long as you have the anatomical tissue, that is the doctor you need to see. So that's our two takeaways there. Right. Don't let cinnamon inject you <laughs> in the house in Baltimore. Don't, don't let cinnamon do the, the butt shots either. Like don't let cinnamon do that. All right. So let's, let's, let's next do, you know, you're a cisgendered lesbian. You talked about pap smears. Um, is what other, if you know, cisgendered lesbian doesn't want to have kids. What's the preventative medicine that, that she needs to come to you for? So, cisgender lesbian women, um, we're bisexual, however you identify. Um, whether or not you have had sex with a man in the past or never had sex um, with a man in the past, your cervical cancer screening is important. Please go get your past smears because you may, you are still at risk for cervical cancer. Please go get your annual um, breast screenings, um, and when you get over the right age, mammogram screenings, okay? And even primary care-wise, please take care of your blood pressure screening, 
your diabetes screening, your thyroid screening. Okay. If you're not having sex, then you're not complicating, contemplating pregnancy, then no, you don't need birth control. But I, we still prescribe birth control for a variety of reasons. Okay. And also, um, safe, safe sexual practices, using dental dams. Um, if you're using sexual toys, like a strap, I had to tell a young lady how to properly clean her strap because she was wondering why her partner kept getting infections all the time. She was using improper treatment, just throwing it in the water. Or oh. use the same toy with another patient because you can still transmit um, infections that way. And, you know, a, a, a non-intersectional physician wouldn't be a seat to this kind of knowledge. So when they come to me and ask me these questions, I'm telling them this for the first time, they're completely floored. Like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. Well, and I would, I, I could understand why, because you're like, well, it's not attached to a human being. So why does it matter? Right. Mm-hmm. But, you know, bodily fluids are bodily fluids. Right. So they they transmit and transfer. All right. So I think we you know, I think cisgendered women know what to do for reproductive health. Right. We know we know if you get pregnant, you need to go see the OBGYN, whether you go or not. You know, cisgendered women know about breast exams for the most part. Um, what about other preventative? Well, actually, I want to ask about fibroids. Is there anything that we can do um, to prevent fibroids, to um, like make them better? Because, you know, especially at our age, so many of our friends have had to have the fibroid surgery or are currently suffering from fibroids. So, you know, is there something that that the 20 year old could be doing so that they don't get to be 40 and have the issues that my friends have had? Well, let me go back to your reproductive health question with the cisgender um, lesbian patients. If you desire to plan a family and start a family, come and talk with your health care provider first because there is access out there for you. So you may fear being discriminated against um, and you may fear that it may be unaffordable or unavailable to you, but do not go doing extreme things like buying an uh, insemination kit off of Amazon and then asking a random trade friend off the street to donate sperm. That's not safe. Okay. So come and see us. We can get you the right resources that you need. Fibroids, on the other hand, are a very, very complicated thing because there's lots of... Um, factors. A lot of it's genetic. Okay. Um, some of it's environmental. So is there anything you can do to prevent fibroids? Not really, but some things that can contribute to it. Um, diet, obesity. When you get extra fat, right? It's going to make you mess up your menstrual cycle. That's going to put extra estrogen in your body, which can make things grow in your uterus or in your ovaries. So diet and nutrition are really, really big, important thing. Family history. If you know anyone in the family in the family who's had to have a hysterectomy at the age of thirty because they bled so much, then that could likely happen to you. And this goes for all women who still have their anatomical female partners. Okay. Um, ovarian cancer screening. With there's really no screening for ovarian cancer, but we know that pregnancy or we know that birth control is actually protective. Oh. Against ovarian cancer, right? Because you're not ovulating, so you're not causing any damage to go to that outer epithelial lining of your ovary. So contraception can actually be protective against that. But fibroids in and of themselves, there's no real way to prevent them or treat them. But I would say don't ignore your symptoms. Okay. So don't go 
for years and years and years, having these heavy, heavy menstrual cycles. And all of a sudden, you show up in the emergency room with a low, with a low hematocrit, you have to get transfused. You know, pay attention to your symptoms early because if you catch them early, um, you can get the proper treatment for them early and you can prevent them from becoming a bigger issue in the future. So what are some symptoms? I feel like I'm just asking you all my all the questions people ask me because my best friend is an OBGYN. So what are some symptoms that, you know, you as an intersectional, you know, intervention, inter, interventionalist, that's what I call you now. Um, what are some symptoms that women should complain more about when they go to the OBGYN or that other doctors ignore um, that could have consequences? So you talked about heavy cycles and that being one. Um, are there and, and other symptoms that especially are prominent in black women that maybe you know, mm-hmm. that's a bigger deal and I, should, I shouldn't ignore it if a doctor's dismissing me. So the biggest symptoms um, that are often, well, one of the main reasons women come to the gynecologist, bleeding issues, pain. That's a big symptom that women often ignore. Pain, pain, pain. If you're having pain, you need to have it evaluated because your regular primary care physician may dismiss it um, as, oh, she's on her side because she's had menstrual Pain. Um, abnormal discharge or odor, and then not just uh, heavy bleeding itself, but your cycle is off, your cycle stops, you stop having a cycle for months. That could be an issue. So those are things you don't want to ignore because you could be missing all kinds of things. Not just fibroids, but hey, you're having pain, you could be missing huge cysts on your ovaries that may require surgical intervention that can compromise your fertility. Um, also, screening, 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 STD screening. Yes, we recommend that, particularly um, in our population, screening for gonorrhea, chlamydia, HIV, because the rates are still high, okay, in our population. Those are things you do not want to ignore. If, even if it seems slight or minimal, there could be a very, very big underlying issue there that could potentially cause you a lot of problems in the future. Now, we know Black women are always booked and busy, right? We're always booked and busy. Who has time to go, you know, we'll make time to go to the gynecologist because that's how you get your birth control and you don't have a choice. But we're often not making our doctor's appointments to go to see the other doctors. We're not, you know, we're not doing the things. So, and and we have higher rates of diabetes and heart disease. um, And we talked about strokes and Serena Williams's pulmonary embolism. You know, what are the things we should be doing and screening for to prevent those, you know, negative outcomes as well? Um, And then how do we advocate for ourselves if a doctor is ignoring us with those things? Yeah, that was going to be a big thing I say. Advocate for yourself. You have a voice. Talk to um, one, I would say, don't be afraid to get a second opinion. Okay. Um, And two, when you go to the doctor, don't be afraid to spill the beans, spill the tea, open up completely because we need to know these things. There are things you're not telling me that I don't know are in your chart, then we could miss something. So do not be afraid um, when you go to the doctor, when you go to the emergency room to open up. Your medical record is confidential between you and that physician. Um, advocating for yourself. Well, first I would say, try to seek physicians that look like you that you feel comfortable with, because oftentimes it's a vibe once you walk into the door. 
And if you feel like that all your needs are not addressed, then it's time to go somewhere else. Okay. But I would say, first and foremost, try to see a physician that looks like you, that understands you, <laughs> excuse me, that understands you, that understands where you're coming from, that understands um, where you've been. Okay. All right. All right. So, you know, we've, we've kind of been negative the whole time, whole time when we talk about these outcomes and intervention. Um, you know, our friend Cameron Matthews does have this program that tries to help more doctors or more black people become doctors. There are other people who are working to change. Cause the problem I've had is, you know, I often know that, you know, I at least need a, a, I usually look for female doctors if I can't find a black doctor, but black doctors are very hard to find. Um, and y'all are so booked up, not taking new patients, all of that. And so it's so, so hard um, to find, you know, a new black doctor, especially. Um, and, and things are hopefully changing in that regard. But is, is, is anything changing? Like, are things getting better? You know, it seems like we talk about these statistics now, you know, I can see it on MSNBC or CNN. Um, and I can read about it in the Washington Post or the New York Times or, you know, in every newspaper. Now that we all know that black women health disparities aren't changing and look the same way they did 50 years ago. Has there been a change to medicine or public health um, since we now have this awareness? Well, I can say the thing that's helped in recent years has been the Affordable Care Act. Um, it didn't give a single payer where everybody could get access, but it at least opened the door to Medicaid expansion to get more people under the umbrella um, of healthcare. Um, it also p- provided funding for clinics that helped underserve, which we call federally qualified um, healthcare centers, which is where I worked for all this time, um, where we see patients who are uninsured or underinsured. Um, so there has been improvement. Um, We've seen a decline um, in the number of um, Black applicants to medical schools. Um, That's for a lot of reasons. One, there's just a lack of interest. It's a long process. It's costly. However, fortunately, we've seen an uptick with COVID um, in the number of young African-Americans who are interested in going into medicine. So we don't know how long that uptick will last. Hopefully it will last um, a long time. Um, the other thing is that we talk about Black inner city and urban America, which is where a lot of Black physicians will congregate in these big metropolitan areas, right? But we forget about Black rural America, mm-hmm. Alabama, Mississippi, these places where there aren't doctors for um, hundreds of miles. And they still have the same healthcare disparities that inner city or urban um, Black women and Black people do. So... I, particularly the good thing about Cammy's program is that she's also recruiting people to go out to those regions to practice because we need to see more people like that. But we, we, we can't forget our, our black fellow black brothers and sisters out in rural, rural America. So, you know, that it's because it, I, I live in Charlottesville and so, which is quasi rural. So, you know, like finding a black doctor here is virtually impossible. Um, you know, what's interesting. I wonder, so, so do, do black nurses and PAs make a difference with intervention? Yes. Um, they made a huge, huge difference. Um, particularly they the frontline primary care agents, nurse practitioners, um, physician assistants, 
um, nourishment wise, uh, because we've we've got this uptick of medical students going into medical school, but when they get there, they don't want to go into pediatrics. They don't want to go into family medicine. They don't want to go into obstetrics and gynecology. They don't want to go into these fields where you have to work hard and not make all this money. They want to be orthopedic surgeons or dermatologists or radiologists. And so we still are having a lag in um, physicians going into primary care, particularly Black physicians. So where the gap is being filled in, which is wonderful, the nurse practitioners and the PAs, particularly for our specialty, because they can take care of um, the uncomplicated things like your routine healthcare screening, your routine pap smears and mammogram screening, uh, your routine diabetes screening. They can leave the complicated um, patients for the physicians to see. So it's free that schedule a lot. And also these, these nurse practitioners and PAs and such are going out into these um, rural areas and taking care of these patients where physicians don't want to go. So that made a huge, huge difference. And we thank them for that. Yeah, I ask that because, you know, people say med school takes too long um, or I don't want to be a doctor. I don't want to do all that work. Um, and I, I just want to flag that as a career possibility for people, right? Like, you could still be in healthcare. You could still service patients, not spend as much time that the doctors spend in med school and make an impact and help, help address these disparities, right? Yeah. You can, you can be a piece of the change um, and, and help to, you know, just make, make everything better. Cause it's, it's always crazy to me. Like I always, it's always crazy to me that, you know, my chance of surviving breast cancer is higher in like Cuba than in Washington, DC. Like that is literally the truth. Like, and I always tell them, um, you are any less of a practitioner being a nurse practitioner because it's a different model of care. Nursing is a right. different model of care. Being a physician, physician, that's a different model of care. If these people wanted to go to medical school, be doctors, they would be, but they provide a different model of care that is effective and works well for patients. And so they're greatly, greatly needed. And so that's where a lot of these clinics are turning to. Um, we call them mid-level providers, but providers who aren't MDs um, for that specific reason, just because Black doctors, particularly who are finishing medical school, just aren't interested in going into primary care. And so, fortunately, we've seen this uptick with COVID in the application process, but we don't know how, how this is going to maintain itself. Okay. Well, only 2% of physicians are women, Black women. And even less than a black man. So there's still a long way to go. Well, that's a good way to to close us out. So my last question for you, you know, if you could wave a magic wand and resolve some of these problems, what would you do? If you were truly a unicorn with a magic wand, what would you do? (laughs) Well, if I were truly a a unicorn, I would have had the Affordable Care Act do what it was supposed to do provide single-payer health care for everybody to get coverage. That would be my need. If we, if we, uh, if everybody had insurance like Canada or Great Britain or some of these other countries, uh, we probably would resolve a lot of health care disparities. Single-payer. I like it. That's sim- that feels simple to me. 
That feels like an easy one. Like all we need to do. Yeah, really, so that's not going to really work here, but I think, I think that will resolve a lot of our problems. I, I think it's sad that it's so simple, but it could work. Right. You know, you know, it's that's what's the saddest thing to me that mm-hmm. all it takes is getting everyone access to healthcare and an affordable healthcare system um, to, to save lives. And we've seen it with COVID, right? We've seen it with people getting vaccinated and seeing it with people, um, you know, getting COVID treatment, that all it takes is money and access to make a difference. Well, I would like to thank my dear friend, Richard Jones, the Dr. Richard Jones, who has been my friend, I won't say the year, because I won't acknowledge that we are that old, but who has been my friend forever. And so it was nice to get to have a serious conversation uh, with my BFF for a change um, about women's health care and the disparities and to celebrate him as an interventionist and for what he does as a, you know, triple intersectional doctor, right, uh, that he is and as a unicorn. So thank you all for listening to Getting Common. If you ever miss an episode, you can catch rebroadcasts anywhere podcasts are played and on the Voice America Network and also on our YouTube channel. Feel free to send me emails through the show page or to reach out to me on social media. I am at Carla C on all platforms. Thank you again, Richard, and thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Please join us again next Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another thoughtful discussion.